Hello and welcome to All Things Women's Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Stroud. I'm a board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist. I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a grandfather, I'm a small business owner, I'm a Catholic, among other things. But right now, I'm your host on All Things Women's Health. And on this show, we discuss you know, all things women's health. And we do it always from an authentically Catholic perspective. From childbirth to infertility, pregnancy loss to menopause and mammograms or homeschooling to personal trainers. If it involves women and their health, it's on our agenda. Now, this episode's topic may be a tough one. Some of you may find it a little difficult to listen to. We're going to discuss what many would think of as the darkest possible moment in a young woman's life and how that moment was transformed over time to an amazing story about life, about overcoming adversity, about finding hope, about God's faithfulness to his promise to never leave us. We're going to talk about surviving and thriving, about what happened when a pregnancy followed a sexual assault. Did you know that about one in five women in the U.S. will experience actual or attempted sexual assault? 20%. That means each of you know someone or work with someone who's experienced sexual assault. Did you know that about half of female victims of assault will report that their perpetrator was an intimate partner? Now, as astonishing as these statistics are, this episode's really not about sexual assault, at least not really. The episode, it's not a public service announcement about the need for women, or or men for that matter, to protect themselves from assault. There's a space and there's a time for that discussion. This isn't it. Equally, this episode is not about the pros and the cons of arguments that are being put forth as the need for or maybe the evidence against access to abortion because of pregnancy that results from sexual assault. There is most certainly a time and a space for that discussion, but this isn't it. Rather, this episode is about overcoming the seemingly insurmountable odds that a young woman faced. It's about a young woman whose family and friends came together, faced what most of us would call the unfaceable, and not only survived, but somehow thrived after that tragedy. It's about a young woman who was presented with the opportunity to test everything that she believed, everything that she'd been taught. And we're going to hear from her firsthand how that opportunity played out and the blessings and the lessons that resulted. So I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, counselor Amber Todd. Many of you will recognize Amber from previous episodes of this show. Of her many talents, Amber has special experience and expertise in dealing with women who've undergone trauma, especially trauma related to sexual assault. And our special guest joining us to share her story is Genevieve Stroud, or Nevi, as most of us know her. You may also recognize her from other episodes of All Things Women's Health, where we talked about hospital and birth center birth. Now, Nevi shares my last name, no coincidence there, because by some miracle, my oldest son convinced her to marry him. And we can talk about more about that maybe later in the show. But as you listen to us discuss this difficult yet critically important topic, I want you to try to put yourself in Nevi's position. Try to imagine having gone through what she experienced and try to imagine having the courage to do this, to sit here and to share her story in such an open and public way. So get comfortable as Amber and I take you through a remarkable story with this truly remarkable woman. We'll be right back with All Things Women's Health. Well, Genevieve and Amber, welcome back to All Things Women's Health. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Glad to be here tonight. So, Nevi, a morning you woke up and your entire identity and everything about you had changed. Help us understand what that morning was like. Walk us through that part of your story. Uh, so it was a, a really hectic morning. Uh, I was... This is my first summer staying on campus at school. So I attended Kent State University for my undergrad and I was very excited to be living on my own and I had a few friends who were staying there that summer. So I was dedicating a lot of time to 
working my job at a department store, doing an internship for a small business uh, near Cleveland, and uh, studying fashion merchandising as well. So summer had a little break from this study, but I was, you know, trying to be independent and just enjoying my time with my friends. So I had gone out for the 4th of July and then the the next morning, yeah, everything everything had changed. So my background is that I'm from a really normal middle-class family uh, living in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So I was quite a distance, about three and a half hours from my parents and my two younger brothers. Uh, and when I woke up that first morning on July 5th, my whole identity had changed and I was no longer just a student and a daughter, but I was a mother. And I hadn't given birth the night before. I had been raped by someone I knew and trusted. So about a month prior to all of this, I had broken up with a boyfriend and he persisted in calling me and texting me and wanting to hang out and really would would not let go uh, of that relationship. And we shared a large group of friends. So uh, I had gone out with this group of friends and he decided to take advantage of a situation where I was just trying to be nice. And uh, mm. and he raped me that night of that party. Mm. Um, so little did I know that morning, I knew I had been assaulted, but it wasn't until uh, a few weeks later that I found out that I was pregnant from that from that assault. And ironically, as we're recording this on July 21st, 2022, uh, I had just looked back this morning and this was the day four years ago that I had taken that pregnancy test that mm. changed my life. I remember waking up that morning and I knew something wasn't right and I just tried to snap myself back into reality and I, as that day went on, I realized, oh no, I didn't make a mistake. Someone had taken advantage mm. of me and um, I had already planned on going home that weekend. So I drove home to my family and I had to make a really tough decision of how was I going to tell my parents? Sure. And that three and a half hour drive home was so excruciating. Uh, I just kept going over and over in my head did this really happen? How do I tell my family? Mm. Um, I'm very close with both my parents. Uh, and I decided I at least needed to tell my mom. And so my mom had called me on my drive and asked how I was doing. And I said, uh, this is the worst day of my life, I think. And I said, but I don't really want to talk about it right now. I'll just talk to you when I get home. And later that evening, we sat down on the couch together, and I, I let her know what had happened. And we actually took a pause before telling my dad because um, we just didn't know like what to do. It was a very yeah. confusing situation to be in, um, and we ended up telling my dad the next day. I'm going to stop you for just a second. Yeah. Um, so, Amber, based on you know your vast experience, how different or similar is everything that Nevi just shared from what you've seen with women through your career. Yeah, I think the experience you described of one just processing an extreme way that you were violated mm -hmm. and the trauma of that. And then you're also trying to navigate what to do with that information mm -hmm. when you feel flooded. Who do I tell? What do I say? Mm -hmm. Who do I tell? Who am I safe with? How do I even make sense of what happened? Right. And so it can leave women feeling very isolated and very alone mm -hmm. because they don't know who those safe people are or mm -hmm. people who you love and trust. You're wondering how they'll perceive what happened or how they'll react. And so you're really having to process a lot of emotion and thoughts in a very short, vulnerable period of time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're driving home and you're trying to decide you're wrestling really with how much do you share with your parents or do you share any with your parents and yeah. your mother versus your dad versus your brothers, all these things mm -hmm. help listeners understand what that was like and what you were thinking and what, what decisions did you make right there and why? Yeah. So, so it happened. It was just my mom and I who were home at first. And when we sat down, I just melted essentially and burst into tears and, and told her what had happened. And so we were both sitting there holding each other and talking through it and feeling dumbfounded. And I felt so silly that I hadn't gone to the hospital right away because when I woke up in that morning, it, everything was just so 
confusing and I felt so it was such almost like an out-of-body experience mm. that mm -hmm. I um I didn't quite know what to do so I just went into work that day and worked my shift and then went home just as I had planned I just did anything I could to feel normal uh and I relayed that to my mom so she took me to the doctor the next day and I just had a well visit told them what happened and we just almost immediately started trying to find what resources were available to help me and I think we ended up calling the Fort Wayne I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head but the Women's Crisis Center here in Fort Wayne mm -hmm. and they had initially said um that because my assault had happened in Ohio and we were now in Indiana, they weren't sure if I had an uh -huh. exam here in Indiana, how that would affect um, if they would take it or any legislature litigation that happened over in Ohio. Yeah. So I didn't have a rape kit done. And so I think part of me will always wonder what would have happened beyond that um, legally if I had, but you know, I think we knew the I'll, truth. I'll bet most listeners... Uh, that haven't experienced, if mm -hmm. they're in the 80%, fortunately, that haven't experienced assault, I bet when they hear you say that, they're just trying to imagine what they would be thinking if they were in the same position. But do you yeah. do you remember, you know, were you were you angry? Did How did you feel? Were you hurt? Were you afraid? Were, what were you in those early moments? I was scared and confused, and I felt really helpless. Mm. I And I'm someone who is usually very determined. My dad calls me a fireball because I'll get my head set on something and I'll just make it happen. And in that moment, I felt so very powerless and I felt really, really broken, broken in body and spirit and mind. And it was so uncomfortable uh, mm -hmm. to and kind of hopeless to to feel that way when you're used to someone who is determined and a go-getter uh, and all those kinds of things. So I felt the opposite of who I really was. And so I think in those first moments, I just knew that I had to surrender what was left of me over to God. And so that was my first step in just telling my parents what had happened. That was me saying, okay, God, I'm going to put this in your hands now because I don't, I don't know what else to do. And that kind of became the theme of my life over the next year to two years. And, and to be clear, today. you didn't know you were pregnant. No, not you, yet. This is you dealing with just having been assaulted. Just having been assaulted. You don't know about mm -hmm. the pregnancy yet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So how much time went before you found out you were pregnant? Uh, so it was a couple of weeks, maybe a little over, and uh, I knew I had tracked my cycles before. So I actually knew that I'd been assaulted on my peak ovulation day, which was really scary to me. Wow. And so my parents and I spent that time talking about, okay, you know, we're going to place this in God's hands. And my parents and I have always been very, very pro-life. And that's been a topic that's close to our hearts. And in that situation, I think we were all stumped because you hear about this used as an argument uh, in, in different circles where it's like, well, shouldn't abortion access be encouraged and available for women who have suffered rape and are pregnant from rape? And here we were sitting in that situation, which happens to so few people. And I thought that would just hide this horrible thing that happened to me. Mm -hmm. um, and my parents said, you know, we'll support you no matter what you want to do. And I looked at them and I said, if I were pregnant, I said, I were, that baby's going to be given up for adoption. Uh -huh. I said, I, um, abortion was never an option in my mind. Um, now, as a younger woman, had you, you mentioned really being raised pro-life, but mm -hmm. had you thought through scenarios like that? Oh, yeah. I'd actually, a few months before this had happened, it was in the winter of the same year, I had had a conversation with someone, uh, just a peer of mine, and we were talking about Planned Parenthood mm -hmm. and different things. And he said, well, what about when a woman gets raped? And I said, well, thank you for creating the saddest scenario I can think of. And in that, if I were to be in that situation, I would hope that I would choose something other than abortion. And so that was just ringing in my ears as I thought, oh, I could potentially be pregnant. And then 
um, July, yeah, July 21st, 2018, I got that positive pregnancy test and I just wept my parents' arms, not even for myself, but I felt so brokenhearted because this baby was going to be raised without a dad. Uh, and sure. I have a very, very close relationship with my dad. Mm. And I just know how much that, that how important that relationship right. is. Mm. And I thought, not just, oh, how could I do it on my own? But what is this baby going to think of their father? And how do I explain this to them down the road? Yeah. Um, and I almost hear you saying, even in that, your mother heart coming out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even in that moment for you to be conscious enough to recognize the future of the child in your womb. Yeah. And caring for them and being aware of what mm-hmm. that might entail. And you shared with me earlier about that choice you made of not allowing that to define you, but to choose for good to triumph over evil. Talk us through what that what that meant to you. So I knew that I had to, like having a child on the way, that immediately puts it on your heart, okay, there's something greater than me going on here, and it's not just about me anymore. I'm literally physically given this life to defend and protect. And I thought, if I can't do it for myself, I'm going to work on healing for this baby who I've only known about for a few hours. And that was my motivation moving forward, um, going back to school and having to get up for class through morning sickness and dealing with lawyers and the school board who I worked with who eventually got uh, my rapist expelled from school. It was the Holy Spirit. I prayed that the Holy Spirit would put me on my feet every morning Mm -hmm. and get me to do the things that I needed to do to be successful in that healing. What do you remember as being the the toughest part of those, those early weeks and months? I think just coming to terms with what had happened and wondering, can... Can I love this baby that I'm growing? Mm. Uh, and I think your first pregnancy is such a weird experience to feel that life inside of you for the first time. And this was doubly so because I didn't even remember the moment in which the child was conceived. I didn't have a beautiful memory of being with a, you know, a spouse or someone who I loved. And I had always imagined having a baby as it's half you and half of your best friend. Sure. And I thought the other half of my baby is this person who I had broken up with. I made a clear decision that I Mm. wasn't going to continue a relationship with them and we were not healthy for each other. And now I, you know, working through those emotions of not only having just broken up with somebody, but, um, the, yeah, the, the violation, but I don't know. It was, it was just a lot of reflection and quiet and trying to make, peace with that and inviting Christ in to say, okay, how, like, walk me through this. Um, Was there an element, um, and I don't don't know the best word, the one that comes to mind is sort of shame. Was there mm -hmm. this sense of, you know, I'm not married. People are going to know that I'm pregnant. Um, How do I explain this to people, my friends? Oh, yeah. It was huge um, because I... So there are two things about my vocation that I knew, uh, and I had prayed and was really diligent and dedicated to abstaining from sex before marriage Mm -hmm. up until this abusive relationship that I had gotten into. And then um, I I also knew that God wanted me to be a mother. I prayed about that for a really long time. And um, I, uh, it was, it was really hard to um, you know, just go about my life in my Catholic circle, especially at home, and think, okay, people are going to see me being pregnant, mm. and they, I'm, I'm not attached to any boyfriend. It's not like they can say, oh, at least you know she's with this guy and he's a good guy. It's right. just nevy, and it was so unexpected for it to be me. I remember when I finally announced that I was pregnant, I shared something on social media just for my friends and the amount of people who texted me or DM'd me. And some people were kind of rude about it and asked like, oh, so who's the lucky guy? Who's the dad? And I thought that's a totally inappropriate question, but it was as, it was as hard as I imagined it to be. There were a lot of, a lot of tears shed, a lot of shame. 
Uh, and one thing that helped me and my family kind of process through all of that was meeting with Father Andrew Budzinski, mm-hmm. who is a priest that I had known since I was in about the seventh grade. And he's just a close friend of the family. So he really helped us work through some of those things so, together. I mean, Amber, is that feeling, is that a common feeling of victims of, of abuse and assault? That sense of, I must have done something wrong. How am I going to tell people? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that sometimes people don't mean to, but it can be implied in the mm. questions they ask. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, even just walking with women who had to go through the court system, you have to talk about in detail what was happening that night, what yes. you were wearing. And, mm, right. you know, when all these details come up, of course, the regular question that comes up is, like, why did this happen? What did I do to deserve this? And I think that's the number one thing that, I want to reiterate, re- reiterate to women, and I know mm-hmm. Nevi, you would agree that that it's not your fault. Mm-hmm. Yes, that you did nothing to deserve this. That was really tough for me to say this was not my fault because I had always thought, oh, I would never let myself be in a situation where something like this could happen. I'm too smart. Mm-hmm. I I know too much, and I I would never let that happen. And then it, it did happen, and you have to step back and think, okay, there is so, there are so many things that are out of my control and this was one of them and even if I had made bad decisions and how much alcohol I had consumed Mm -hmm. it should never have led to me being assaulted Mm -hmm. by someone I knew at a party where I was surrounded by friends all of it was wrong and all of it was you know for the most part out of my control um yeah, so there was there was a lot of a lot of shame and a lot of guilt, and I think it was really only by the grace of God that I was able to work through those things um, with the help of the support that I received and the support that I sought out. There was a lot of me uh, s- seeking advocates to help me through that because I knew that I was determined to not let this affect the my future relationships, like when like my future spouse but also my relationship with my child and my future children mm-hmm. but so I, th- there must have been some pretty important important people there you mentioned father andrew but mm-hmm. um tell us more about who was good for you and why and what mm-hmm. they did that was good yeah so my my parents were were pretty incredible uh, they are really really protective and defensive of me so they were great at checking in with me and responding to how I wanted to share what happened and who we shared it with. Mm. And so it was this slow building of circles. So we talked about like the innermost circle was me and my parents and then slowly adding people in uh, and how many details we shared. So Mm. we have these check-ins where we talked about who's in what circle. Um, But my mom luckily was home full-time at the time. And so she was able to take a, a lot of time to come over to school and and help me sort through things. Um, when we, so the, the Monday after I was assaulted, I went back to school and my mom helped me file a police report and stayed with me. So we worked through that, the rest of that little bit of time navigating jobs and getting a restraining order and uh, how I was going to handle my internship. And so my mom was physically there with me walking through all of these things. And then my dad was kind of doing the back end of work at home. Uh, so helping more with my brothers and um, yeah, um, making sure that everything financially was handled to be able to balance this change in structure and uh, everything that was you know, to come. That uh, sort of drive to the ordinary, back to school, back Mm -hmm. to work, back to the mundane things of life. Is that a common response or is that something that you don't hear very often? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you don't have the ability to process what happened and you even mentioned you sort of just drove home and it's kind of like you're so flooded by the Mm -hmm. experience that all you know to do is what you always do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just wanted something to feel normal and there were very few things that felt normal for a long time. Yeah. And I think it's a way, too, for women to take power back, mm-hmm. to say, like, this, I'm going to own my healing. I'm going to make choices when you feel mm-hmm. so powerless. That's a, a healing response to yeah. then take ownership, which you did. You you were very committed mm-hmm. to the healing process. Definitely. And so, you, so you found out you're pregnant mm-hmm. as we move kind of along the timeline. Um, you, you dealt as best you could with 
the initial event. Mm -hmm. Then some time goes by, you find out you're pregnant, Mm -hmm. another crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, You start dealing with that a little bit. And then it became time for you to think, okay, now I'm a pregnant woman. Yeah. I have to do what pregnant women do. Yeah. I better start thinking about being pregnant. Yes. And, uh, And there's a pretty good story that I happen to know of sort of the medical care experience you had <laughs> after that. So th- let's share some of that with listeners because I think they'll be moved by it. Yes. So this is one of the wildest parts of my story and just how full circle it comes. And Father Dan, our pastor at our parish, loves to say, you know, God, when God created the universe, he was setting things in motion to bring you to the moment that you are in right now now. And everything that has ever happened in history has led up to the moment that you are in right now. And nothing has been done without this moment in mind, which is pretty wild. And I thought the first time I heard that, that's really cheesy. And now I'm experiencing (laughs) it and it's really, really beautiful. So after I found out I was pregnant, my mom and I talked about, and my dad too, we talked about what type of care I was going to seek, who I was going to go to. And I thought, um, the Strouds, that FMCC place, fertility and midwifery. Midwifery, how do you pronounce it? I said, they're Catholic. I think I just need to go to them. And my mom was like, are you sure? Because, you know, they have kids who go to school with you and your brothers. Um, Is this, you know, I know they they were all about protecting my privacy. So they were great at bringing up these questions of, you know, what level of intimacy are you going to build with these people? And I said, I think I just have to see them. I need someone who can pray with me through this and who can understand my faith, uh, faith as a part of this, because that was my bedrock. Mm. Um, and we went in and you guys were very supportive of my faith. I remember it was a little further down along the lines. We had a meeting with, or an appointment with Marianne and w- it was getting into some of the nitty gritty of, okay, really, what am I going to do? Am I going to put my baby up for adoption and let another set of parents raise this baby or am I going to keep her? I think at that point we knew that she was a girl and Marianne looked at me and my mom and I said, I, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can be Mm. a mom. I don't know what to do. And she looks at me and I think she patted my leg and she goes, Navi, you're already a mom (laughs) and you're already doing a good job because you're here and you're trusting your family and you're trusting us. And it just, I don't know, I think all three of us girls ended up crying in that room (laughs) at that time. And it was so beautiful. And that's where it really clicked for me of, oh, oh, she's right. And my parents have been saying that. And it (laughs) took something about sitting sitting in the office in that moment with these three women um, who are, you know, we're a little, little trio. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, something changed in that moment. And from then on, I knew, oh, okay, this, this is my calling. This is. And when you say this, you mean to raise the to child. Raise, to raise the child. To, to move raise away from the adoption idea. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Did you seriously consider adoption for some period of time? I did for about that first half of pregnancy. So, um, I think it must have been after my 20 week appointment that we were talking with, um, with Marianne and I, yeah, so up until that point, I was pretty set on adoption just because I knew that I was young and I didn't have a job yet. I still had a semester left of school to finish. I had already planned on graduating early, but uh, I had a few jobs lined up and I thought, I didn't think a baby was going to wreck my plans, but I genuinely thought another couple would better serve that baby mm. as parents. Um, and I had watched my mom and dad go through infertility and try for years for a fourth baby. Um, and so I have four siblings in heaven who were miscarried. Um, but so that was always on my heart. I thought, oh, if there's a couple out there who desires a baby and can't have one, then maybe this is their baby and not really mine. I'm just carrying this baby for someone else. Um, So I had actually worked with Catholic Charities uh, and had started some work in talking about adoption. Uh, But after that 20-week appointment, I knew, okay, no, this actually, she's she's my baby. I think think I'm meant to raise this child. So let's pause in the timeline a minute and and deviate to kind of the time you spent working towards adoption. Mm-hmm. So what was that like? when you? What was the first thing you experienced when you said to someone, 
you know, I'm pregnant and I think I'd like to have my baby available for adoption. You know, how did they react to you? Uh, what was that like? If there are other women listening that are thinking they might want to have those conversations, what would you tell them to expect? Um, it's bizarre and it's uncomfortable. Mm. And uh, no no part of it really felt that comfortable, but not in a bad way. It was just, I, I knew it was going to be tough, so I just kind of leaned into it. So it felt odd cold calling Catholic charities, but they were the first people I, I thought of. And I said, hey, here's what happened to me, mm. and I'm pregnant, and is there anything you can do to help me? And I said, I have a family and I have a home. Uh, I said, but I, I don't know what else to do. I need, and so. Hopefully they said something really good. They did. Yeah. They put you up <laughs> with a, a social worker and she was so helpful. And um, I went down to the Catholic Charities office to do some paperwork with them and just get a little bit of counseling on mm. what the adoption process looked like and some of the things that they can offer me. And then I had a home visit from the social worker and so she and I sat and talked through, did I need support from um, WIC, which is like food stamps sure. while I was at school? And what would that look like? And did I need rides to my doctor's appointments? And for adoptive families, you know, did I want a private adoption oh, or sure. an open adoption and what those things look like? So she l walked me through every single step of from now till birth and beyond and what each thing would look like. And from there, we kind of tailored a plan, if you want to call it. Yeah. And it was it was incredibly helpful. And I think that's a big part of my story that I want to share is I would never have known that those resources are there. I didn't know that I was allowed to go on food stamps for this. I didn't. Mm -hmm. And she asked me, you know, do you have insurance? Are you still on your parents' insurance? So I could have gotten support from the Indiana, like, Medicaid. And sure. um, so all of these things were available. I just simply had to get in touch with the right person. So I think that became a, another mission of mine is I, I'm blessed with this family who can help me, but I also know that there are so many resources out there. I'm going to get in touch and see how easy or hard is it really to access these things. And what I found was it's pretty easy. <laughs> um, and I don't mean that in a condescending way, but I want women to hear that they're there and they're kind and they love you. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to be embarrassed about asking for help because that was a huge thing for me. A big lie that the devil has told me ever since I was little was that mm -hmm. uh, if you ask for help, you're a burden. Sure. And so there was this life altering decisions that I had to make to say, no, I am not a burden by asking for help or accepting help that's offered to me. And I, I'm not alone in thinking, oh, if I ask for help, I'm a burden. Um, these things are there and they're accessible and they want to help you. So Amber, you and your professional role, I'm sure have been in that seat when you're talking to women that are going through this. Yeah. What kind of things have, have you heard and have you learned uh, through your work that gets women through that place where Nevi passed? Yeah, I think you know, answering the sexual assault hotline, we had a lot of these conversations, and I think it takes a lot of courage to reach out, as you mm -hmm. said, and to ask for help, and just for women to know that help is available, and that you really do have to advocate for yourself. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people don't know how to help you if they don't know yeah. what the need yeah. is. And so I think it takes courage and trusting the right people, mm -hmm. the people who are safe, and bringing things to the light for you to know that mm -hmm. you're not alone. And I think once women realize they're not alone, they get the strength and courage they need to yes. move forward. Because that's got to be incredibly isolating. It is. Uh, you don't want to share it. That makes you feel isolated. Who do you share it with? Mm -hmm. What am I going to do? I'm having this baby all by myself. Mm -hmm. it, it's got to be isolating. Mm -hmm. And that's where we're at our weakest when we're isolated. Yeah. And it's uncomfortable to keep sharing it over and over. And you don't know how people are going to respond to you. So there were the people who from Catholic Charities who I was talking to, they responded with such compassion. But then sometimes I talked to people who I had known for a long time mm -hmm. and their shock was too much for me to handle. So I found myself trying to soften what I was telling them so that they wouldn't be shocked, which was really strange, me yeah, trying to comfort them, them and protect yeah. them. Uh, but what I found and what I think is really worth mentioning to someone who knows someone going through this or has been through it is that retelling of the story 
and being able to think through it and share or withhold certain details depending on the situation you're in, that whole processing is so worth it. And I think that was one of the things that led to the most healing for me. And I didn't even realize it at the time, but it was really hard to report what had happened. And I had to tell it over and over and over. And I filed a report with my school. So they did an investigation. So not only was I dealing with uh, the police department and them getting into gory details, but I was dealing with the school Mm -hmm. and them having to hash out all the details. And then I was going to a free therapist on campus. So I was talking to her about things and I was talking to my family. And so it was the balancing of this narrative and uh, yeah, having to tell it over and over and over. And it felt like pulling the stitches out of a wound that was just barely trying to heal. Then you have to cut it open again. Um, That's the, the best thing I can compare it to. And it was excruciating. But now I look back and I see, oh, that's that's why I was able to do this is because through the retelling, I processed it. Nothing was hidden. I didn't leave any wounds to fester and pop up and turn into something uglier down the road. Uh, and I think hiding, if I had hidden what had happened or if I hadn't been pregnant, those wounds wouldn't have been healed. They would have just sat there. Wow. So you go through this process through some time and you explore adoption. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you had an overall pretty positive experience, relatively speaking, mm-hmm. with that adoption decision. But then you decide to go the other direction yeah, um, and to raise this child that's inside of you. And then I happen to know that you had a pretty uh, a pretty cool conversation, let's just say, with Marianne, mm-hmm. uh, where she had some advice for you. So share share that conversation, what that was like when she suggested that uh, that maybe your future was already laid out for you and you just didn't know. Oh, yes. Okay, so that's amazing. She, yeah, said in that conversation, I can't believe I didn't mention this the first time. Uh, she said, God has a plan for you. And none of us know right now what that is, but he's got a plan for you and for this baby, and it is going to be so good. (laughs) And um, she and I didn't know at that time, but that plan included her son. So this whole time I was pregnant, I was praying so desperately uh, for the intercession of St. Joseph and just to God to say, Lord, please provide a spouse. I said, if it takes five years, if it takes 10 years, I was expecting it would take a long time to find the right person who could love not only me, but um, my baby too. I mean, mm-hmm. to come into that situation, I'm carrying in a lot of baggage. <laughs> and so I was just praying desperately for my future spouse and um, my daughter's future father. And it wasn't until down the road, about three months postpartum, that uh, Ian, my husband, and I ran into each other uh, hanging out with some friends. And it was my friend Rose, who was a huge support to me through my whole pregnancy. And now we have kids around the same age, so still very close. She's my daughter, Frances's godmother. But Rose had been telling me, oh, you know, there's this kid, Ian, and uh, he went to Dwanger with you, and he lives, uh, he goes to Walsh. So Walsh was a school who was about 40 minutes from Kent State where I was going. And she said, so if you need, you know, some nice Catholic friends to hang out with while you're going through this, your last semester at school, uh, she said, why don't you text Ian and hang out with him? And I thought, okay, that's going to be very strange if (laughs) if I hang out with this man uh, you know, and I'm pregnant and I know he's Catholic and he comes from a nice family, but his parents are my doctors and I just feel like this could be really awkward. And <laughs> so I said, thanks Rose, but no thanks. Uh, and then about three months postpartum, I was going out with my friends for the first night, my first night, uh, being away from the baby. And, um, Ian happened to be there at Rose's house and we all went out to a restaurant and we're hanging out together and Ian and I had a great conversation and I thought, that's funny, you know, that Rose has brought Ian along and he and I got along and, but he, I found out he was 
dating another girl and I thought, oh, okay, so that's, that's off the table. But that's really too bad because Ian was really nice. <laughs> and then Ian had people over to his house and we reconnected there and Marianne and I had a beautiful moment where I think I leapt out of the hot tub to run up and give her a hug. And Ian and I ended up having on just a really long, wonderful conversation and really connected over this. And it was that same night that I told him my story. Mm. Um, obviously because of HIPAA, his parents couldn't share with him, you know, everything I'd been through. Um, and well, that is an interesting yeah. little twist because um, <laughs> I remember, uh, moving from doctor to parent, I remember my son saying, you know, I was at a party and I met this nice young woman named Nevi. That's not a common name. <laughs> and um, my wife and I were in the same room and we looked at each other and we thought, oh, how interesting. <laughs> we knew exactly who he was talking about. Yes, it was me. <laughs> he didn't say anything. And then some time went by and I think you all had connected at some other mm -hmm. outing. And he said, I saw that girl named Nevi again. You wouldn't believe this. She has a baby. Thought, yeah, we'd believe it. Yeah, we, uh, we just didn't say anything, but we, yeah. we would believe it. And then it was it was so fun to watch uh, to watch that evolve. Um, so then some time went by, mm -hmm. and because we're not afraid of cheesy on this show, talk to us about the decision that you and Ian made uh, to get married. Oh, so it just the whole relationship felt very very divinely inspired if you want to put it that way but uh these journeys that Ian and I have been going through uh through our last bit of college lined up really well and so he had to go back to school and we were dating while he was away uh, in his last year of school after I had graduated and then he came home for the summer continued dating over the summer and towards the end we had gotten really serious talking about um, marriage and what our future looked like together. And from the beginning, things were very serious because I was bringing along Francis and he, from the beginning, had such a beautiful relationship with her and he was so amazed at how much she could love him. Mm. And so we were able to walk this journey of parenthood uh, together before we were even married, which is really bizarre, but creates for a beautiful relationship between he and Francis. Mm -hmm. And so it's August 22nd, and Ian and I were supposed to go out to dinner, and he had talked to my boss, and I was getting off work early, and he had planned an evening with us. And he says, oh, my mom's calling me. We have to stop along the way on our way to dinner. <laughs> and so he pulls into the FMCC parking lot and I'm just gabbing away because we'd already had a great first half of our date and we're <laughs> moving on to dinner at a restaurant I'd wanted to try and I'm not paying attention. We There are so many signs that I should have known that something weird was going on. We walk in the back door instead of the front door and the fact that we had to stop at the office on our way to dinner was odd in its own. <laughs> and he walks around to exam room two uh, which is where Marianne and my mom and I had sat and had that conversation that God has a plan for me and it's going to be beautiful. And he opens the door and there are streamers and pictures of he and I and he and Francis and all the three of us. And I think there were rose petals everywhere. It was just done to the max. It was beautiful. And he, I, I, he opened the door and I looked at him and I said, shut up. <laughs> and he, he always makes fun of me for that. And he goes, okay, just let me talk. And it was there in that room where my life had changed forever that mm -hmm. he asked me to marry him. And my life changed forever again. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, it was it was so beautiful. A very, very good full circle moment. Always a fun story to tell. Mm -hmm. People don't really get it sometimes. Why did <laughs> your husband propose to you in an exam room? And uh, it's It's like a sweet story, yeah, just between us. Yeah. yeah, I mean, how could anybody have known um, that all of those things would develop? And and it's possible after 28 years of marriage, that may be the only time that my wife was ever right. But, um, <laughs> but she was right in that one. She that, was. that God did have somebody in mind, and yes. he knew exactly who it was. We just didn't. Uh, mm -hmm. We we didn't have any idea. Yeah. So you know, that's an amazing story, um, and. It's even hard to think of it as negative in, in some ways, at least for us sitting here now. But speak some to to other women that might be listening, that might be contemplating a different a different path, 
who mm-hmm. may have experienced a different path that, mm-hmm. that wasn't as positive as yours. You know, what, what can you say to them and sort of where they are in this moment? Uh, every person, it, it's worth it for you to seek healing. This sounds cheesy, but but God loves you, and he loves you so deeply. And God does not desire pain or suffering for us. Mm. If we encounter suffering, it's meant for a greater good. And you are worth seeking healing. Your life is worth finding joy and doing things to to lead you to your truest self and into deeper relationship with God and the people around you. There's community available to you. I uh, might not feel like it. Mm. It's, you might feel so isolated, but there are people who truly love you, and you are so worth their time, and they, they want to help you. Well, mm. I think part of the most amazing part of this amazing story is your willingness and your ability to share it in such a public uh, way as a podcast that may be around for the next, who knows, 100 years. Uh, um, <laughs> but it, that, it, that is a remarkable part of the story. You know, Amber, you've been doing this professionally for a long time, and uh, it still, I'm sure, can kind of touch you in ways. But, you know, what, what's your impression of Nevi's journey? And, you know, where do you see uh, areas that it could have gone differently without the right kind of support and help? And what have you seen, in, you know, through your years? Yeah, I think, first of all, I just want to say I'm so proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. And you are an inspiration and an encouragement to women listening who have been through similar seasons or maybe just can relate to that feeling of being lost and alone mm-hmm. and feeling ashamed. And I think the way that you chose to lean into your faith and to trust God and to surrender is an example for all of us to do the same. In these moments that are life-altering moments, you know, you mm-hmm. said your entire identity changed the only thing that is always steadfast is God mm-hmm. and that we can trust him, that he is faithful. And I think your story illuminates his redemption in every way. Thank you. And so thank you for sharing and thank you for being hope for those who need it. Thank you. Yeah, hearing you say that, I'm reminded um, it, it wouldn't have to be assault that led to pregnancy. It could be mm-hmm. a diagnosis of cancer. It could be the loss mm-hmm. of a parent or mm-hmm. the loss of a spouse. The reality of life is we are going to face these tragedies, aren't we? Mm-hmm. You do that for a living. You talk to people about their tragedies and, and how they're coping um, so I, on the one hand, I think it would be easy for listeners to think, wow, that's a, that's a tough story and that's amazing, mm-hmm. but you know, that kind of stuff just doesn't happen in most people's lives. But I think you would say, actually it does, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think anytime we go through suffering, that if we persevere and trust God, it's not only what's happening around us, but ultimately what He's doing in us through that. Mm-hmm. That He's faithful to complete every good work He begins. And so I think we can trust that even in the hard things that we can look back and see the good. Yes. So, Nevi, as we sort of um, come to a close, you referenced a few times some of the resources, Catholic Charities and others, but maybe give listeners uh, more of a sense of some of the specific resources uh, that you found helpful in this journey. Sure, yeah. Um, Obviously, Catholic Charities, uh, I know a women's care center, Mm. they do a lot of help there, Um, A Mother's Hope, and they, A Mother's Hope has wonderful resources for postpartum and in the early years of childcare. Uh, for single moms or moms who have reduced income, things like that. But I have a whole page of resources that I've made on uh, Fertility and Midwifery's website. Um, So if you go to fertilityandmidwifery.com and click on the resources link, uh, there is a link there for, I think it says specifically, low-income mothers or mothers in need of more help. And I have all of the different places available, at least here in Fort Wayne. Some of them are national as well, listed there. Mm. And special shout out to Young Mothers of America, which is one of my coworkers, Tasha's it's her organization uh, that helps young mothers here in the Fort Wayne area as well. Yeah, and I think it's also important to mention that, you know, women who have been maybe in a similar situation might also choose adoption. Mm-hmm. And even though that wasn't the choice that you ultimately felt peace with, there are so many resources for that as well. There are. 
Yeah, and they can be a part of someone else's story of redemption by doing that. Uh, allowing another couple to raise their child is such a grace and such a sacrifice, and there's a lot of beauty that comes from that as well. It always surprises me in my practice when I'm talking to someone who's unexpectedly pregnant and for, via whatever circumstance, and I'll say, you know, within the hour I could put you in touch with someone that would love to adopt your baby and mm-hmm. that would help you along the way. And I think most of the time they don't believe me. I think they think I'm just making that up. But the reality is there are That's great true. resources there. Yeah. And there are many, many more families who want to adopt children than mm-hmm. there are children to be adopted, regardless of what you may hear, you know, sort of in right. the popular press, that it is just not true, um, you know, because of the infertility nature of our practice. We work with families every day that have been trying for years to adopt mm-hmm. a child. And so um, if, if your heart leads you that way, uh, don't be misled. There are there are people that will help you, and that that's their mission. Yeah. And I also want to mention as well that another way that the situation could have gone is that maybe mm-hmm. some women who have been in your shoes chose abortion. Mm-hmm. And I think as a counselor, it's often a sacred space when someone's willing to confess that yeah. and to bring that to the light and to want to heal from that. And mm-hmm. so I just also want to say to anyone listening who has experienced that, maybe you've never told someone, or maybe you haven't had a place to really embrace your own healing, that mm-hmm. just as you spoke earlier, Nevi, that God loves you, yeah, and that He cares for you, and He wants to meet you in that space too, and that there is no shame. There's freedom when we bring things into the light. Yeah, so much freedom and yeah, so much beauty and healing. Mm-hmm. You don't want to let the the devil sit in that dark space. Mm-hmm. You want to bring it to the light and the beauty that's available to you. Um, you're you're still good and you're still worthy of it. Mm-hmm. Well, that seems like a perfect place to to sort of end this remarkable discussion. I, I hope listeners that you've enjoyed hearing this story as much as Amber and I have enjoyed helping Nevi share it with you. Uh, I hope you come away with a better sense uh, of the possible. Uh, even in the sense of uh, of tragedy. Personally, going through this story now, as we've just done, but I've had the chance to live this story uh, with Nevi's daughter now, my granddaughter. And so this story has become the fabric of our family that we've shared with you. And I'm deeply moved by this story's power to remind me of God's faithfulness to his people. You know, our God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob, uh, the God of old and new and yesterday, today and tomorrow, he's with us just like he was with Nevi through this journey. He's always with us. And it's in these moments, these tragic moments, when you can see them the most distant, that I think we would say he's actually the closest Mm -hmm. in those moments. And, you know, if your life story shares some similarities with Nevi's because of assault or regardless of the circumstances and regardless maybe of the decisions that that you've made, regardless of the outcome, you're not alone. We've included a list of those resources, and we will with uh, uh, on our website under the podcast section um, and some of the, the uh, references that Nevi's has mentioned in the show notes. Uh, you can look at that again. It's fertilityandmidwifery.com. Also on Amber's website, there's a lot of great resources. That's ambertod.org. And if you'd like to email her as a counselor, it's hello at ambertod.org. So thank you for listening. Uh, Nevi, thank you for sharing. Amber, thank you for uh, for helping us. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this story. We hope you'll come back for more episodes with great stories. But until then, uh, I'm your host, Dr. Chris Stroud. You've been listening to All Things Women's Health. Oh, 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 oh,